0: We all have a history. Whether as individuals we choose to embrace it or not is entirely up to us. But for many people, identifying with that history is more complicated than a simple stroll down memory lane. On this week's episode, I sit down with poet, storyteller, and graphic designer Chris Campbell. Chris and I spend some time discussing what it's like for him to be a mixed race Native American living as an immigrant in England. I'm your host, Joy Durtinger, and this is 99 Lead Balloons. Episode 3, Embracing Indigenous Identity,
1: Part 1. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, I mean, different time zones and Skype makes it all work, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Of course. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure to be talking with you. Uh, You know, we've tried this a couple of different times before and we had technological difficulties on my end. So third time's a charm and we'll get it right this time. So (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Yeah. Well, Chris, I'd love to hear from you a little bit, if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm a mixed-race Native American. Uh, I'm living as an immigrant in the UK, have been for the last nine years now. have not been back to the States since I moved away. Uh, so it's going to be some severe reverse culture shock at some point. <laughs> um, but I'm a, a poet, storyteller, graphic designer. Um, I've got three kids, and I'm married to uh, the best British woman in the world, uh, Rachel. Rachel. Um, So yeah, that's sort of my thing. By day I run a creative agency, Um, by night I appear on podcasts and do all sorts of fun creative things.
1: Yeah, that's great. I'd love to hear a little bit about how who you are plays into your creative work, how your identities and um, your ethnicity and all of those things, how does that play into your creative work?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so a couple of things. First thing, I just have to say, like Stravin, it's gonna be like kind of a nonlinear, wild ride. Okay. But by the end of it, it will have been an experience that will probably stick with you, hopefully, um, in a good way. Yes. Uh, is my aim. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing is just to say, obviously, this is like my personal experience. I'm not an expert on Native American uh, things or Indigenous people things. This is, uh, yeah through the lens of one man's eyes. Mm. Um, So I would say just to give a little bit of context uh, for like the first 25 years of my life, it had very little bearing on any of the creative work that I did mostly because um, I was just in deep, deep denial. And and that's for a couple of different reasons. Um, One was uh, my mom's side of the family is all Native American. And growing up, we had kind of a just a really crazy childhood. And I'll get into that a little bit more later, I'm sure. Um, but the long and the short of it is I blamed my mom for basically every bad thing that ever happened to us growing up. Mm. Uh, I thought for some reason that, you know she was making decisions that intentionally put us in bad places. Um, And because of that, I just, I hated my mom with a a really deep, powerful anger. Um, And I just wanted her to die. Mm. So uh, genuinely, like, I know that makes me sound like a bad person and I totally have made peace with the fact that that's who I was for a long time. But that's what I wanted. And so when it came time to associate with others, I just didn't have time for being anything that my mom was. My sort of life's mission was, all right, well, let me look at what my mom does and let me be the opposite. Mm. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Let me be better right from the start. A lot Mm. of people talk about being better from the lessons they learn from their parents like once they're adults. And I was just like, nah, I want to do that when I'm five. And uh, because of that, you know, I just was like, uh, okay, well, I'm not going to be Native American. Uh, Mm -hmm. The other thing was just society as well. Made it very clear from, like, cartoon age that uh, Native Americans were not the people you wanted to be. Like, they weren't the rock stars. Uh, Everybody knew it was cowboys and Indians, and the cowboys always won. And, you know, sometimes the Indians helped if they were, like, one of the good ones. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And I was just like, okay, yeah, there's, like, no upside to being Native American because Mm. people are just going to think I'm like my mom and I don't want that. Or they're just going to be like, oh, you're like a loser. And so I was this little brown kid who stubbornly acted like I was not brown at all, Mm. which yielded some really interesting results. Namely, uh, just being ethnically ambiguous meant I was always on the... The end of the receiving end of racism (laughs) no matter Mm -hmm. where i went no matter what country i was in Mm -hmm. um all through my entire life and it's just sort of like well i don't know that person doesn't like mexicans so they assume i'm mexican Mm -hmm. and i would just get like all sorts of comments thrown at me and i do think that i was very fortunate in a way because i without thinking ended up developing this uh, defense mechanism where I just I didn't think the world was racist. I thought the world was populated with really stupid people. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, well, I'm not Jewish or I'm not Mexican or I'm not uh, Middle Eastern or whatever else you think I am. Like, mm. I don't. I can I can think of like literally. W- well, actually, if you if you don't count the last six months, it's probably only like two times that people have attacked me for being Native American hmm. uh, specifically. In the last six months, it's happened a lot more. Oh, just really? Than everybody- online and Mm. people are like oh what you're not Native American Like, you married a white lady and I'm Mm. like what does that have to do with me being Native American doesn't work that (laughs) way yeah or or like oh you're not Native American I'm like why not well because you called yourself Native American you didn't say what tribe you are Mm. I have friends who are Cherokees and they would never say they were Native American they would say they're Cherokee and I'm like okay yes well I'm island chumash but that doesn't help you because it's this tiny little tribe off the coast of california that you have never heard of mm. and if i come at you and i go oh well, i'm island chumash you're gonna be like all right well i'm mount rushmore what does what does this mean <laughs> we're having right. a nonsense conversation right and it's just much more expedient to just say well i'm native american mm. um but anyway uh i i was on the receiving end of racism in all the predictable ways that um all my black and brown friends um described uh, to me later on in life but yeah i just never thought of it as racism i thought of it as this really weird stupidity and because of that i actually ended up with like one of the most significant like white privileges uh in my opinion which is uh just the general idea as an American that like you can do anything if you work hard enough Mm. and a lot of people who are ethnic minorities like myself don't ever actually get to think that way or feel that way because everywhere they look, society is just like dumping on them mm-hmm. and, and, and trying to hurt them. And because I always felt like that was misdirected because so often it was directed at other races other than myself, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just never internalized that. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. now I have people who are like, Chris, why are you so confident? How uh-huh. can you, how can you, like, just look at any everything and be like the world will move i will not
0: yeah <laughs> and I'm just like,
2: i don't know like that's just what happens if you genuinely don't see all of the hate people are pushing towards you mm-hmm. as hate you see it as like misdirected mm-hmm. um i don't know it just changes your your self-perception and so i mean obviously i'm insecure like anyone else um mm-hmm. but i'm generally not insecure about what other people say, it's more about what I think. Mm. And it's like, oh man, if I disappoint myself, that's like the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, all of that to say, yeah, up to about twenty five, um it really had very little impact. I, I would say, um, I was still keenly aware of things like racial justice, social justice, and I, I definitely gravitated towards those things, And I think some of that was, More just growing up really poor, growing up oppressed in a lot of other ways by Mm -hmm. society. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I do think some of it probably was just that knowledge that, man, like Native Americans have been like abused so horribly. Like Mm -hmm. it really is just like like, pure, like, evil what happened to (laughs) my ancestors, Mm -hmm. and and I think some of that must have, like, spurred on um, just this desire to, you know, pursue um, yeah, racial justice. And and that's been a big theme in my work, um, you know, for the last eight, nine years, and uh, it's definitely gotten more personal. A lot of it started off as being directed more um, about creating art that spoke out about situations people I loved were in. Like one of my mm-hmm. best friends in the world, um, his name is Micah and he's black. He lives in Long Beach. And, you know, we would talk all the time and I'm an ocean away, you know, mm-hmm. but I would hear stories about, you know, he'd move to a new neighborhood. He'd go to a restaurant with some white friends and the owner would come out to the table and just like really, really, Really be just like viciously racist for no reason, Mm -hmm. um, and and even you know, drop the n word and just everyone was silent. And just hearing how difficult that was for him and like just the white hot fury I felt at that, Mm -hmm. um, it was just like, man, like I've got to do something to just like change things, but like, what can I do? I'm so far away. And so I started writing a lot more about that. I started reading a lot more um, about issues that black people in America were facing. And it's been really interesting as I've read more and more about the black experience in America. It's actually helped me connect a lot more with my own ethnicity and Mm. and the history of those people. Um, Because at times, a lot of it is tied together, especially in the early days. Um, And even as it's... um, not necessarily tied together. There's a lot of like interesting and by interesting, I mean like horrifying symmetry that goes on. Mm -hmm. Like one thing that a lot of uh, black people have been asking for and campaigning for, for, you know, decades Mm -hmm. is reparations. Yeah. And in theory, I think, Oh man, that's yeah, absolutely. Like America needs to. But then when I look at the way that America handled reparations to the native Americans, Mm -hmm. it, became more controlling in paying native americans back than it then it sort of was when you know america was intent on just killing all the native americans mm. because at least when america was overtly aggressive towards native americans and, and like genociding millions of them um there there felt like there was a conflict there was a battle there was sort of like hope that somehow the native americans might win but as soon as the u.s stopped doing that and was like oh no no we want to make nice we're going to give you some land we're going to go give you some money Mm. all these sorts of things then you know it's very difficult socially for the optics of that to actually like align in favor of native americans because if they start going no this isn't good enough and they fight back or you know they object or whatever then it's just like oh wow like Aren't those people so ungrateful? Mm. Look at what America is doing for them. Like, mm. ugh, they don't have to do that, you know? And it's just like, what? Mm. Like, seriously, you, you like, you killed 8 million or more Native Americans. Right. Like, it's just crazy. And so I do think that, like, um, just African Americans and Native Americans, their their histories and our futures in many ways are yeah, just wrapped up in ways that I never really connected. And even just, you know, in terms of thinking about just the sins of America Mm -hmm. um, as a a system and and a country, it's just like mind-boggling that, you know, Native Americans used to live all over the country, and now we make up like 2% of the total population. Right. There, even within that 2%, there's still over 600 unique uh, native languages that are still spoken. Mm. And you just think. Whoa, like, if if those remaining 8 million or more Native Americans hadn't been, you know, just completely erased from history, like, how many more languages would we have? How many more mm-hmm. cultures would we have? How many more religions would we have? How many more, um, you know, cuisines would we have? Like, there's, mm-hmm. there's so much that is just like, all right, <laughs> colonizers came to this land, killed everybody off, brought over a bunch of slaves, built everything on the back of slaves and said, oh, look at the great job we did. Mm. And it's just like, oh, man, like this is a country like bathed in blood and built by slaves. And somehow, you know, white people are like white privilege. What are you talking about?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, gosh, uh, I think it was a few months ago when I first learned um, to my shame that Native Americans were enslaved before um you know before any any other people group were were enslaved it was like well if we can't kill you or if we need labor done we we're we're not going to kill you we're just going to enslave you until we've gotten everything that we can out of you and then we're going to kill you
2: the the calculating just cold strategy of it all Mm -hmm. is really mind-boggling like uh, obviously the one thing i think most people uh, you know of our generation who are you know in their late 20s early 30s definitely learned in american public school was like oh well you know some of the settlers like gave blankets that were infected with smallpox to the native americans mm. but like when you start looking at the numbers of how many people were wiped out that way and just how underhanded it was it, like it's <laughs> It's just really horrible because it's literally like, oh, well, these people want more money for this land than we're willing to give. So what should we do? Well, let's just kill all of them secretly. Mm. It's like, we'll just chemical warfare them and then be like, well, finders keepers. Mm. And you're just like, no, that's that's
1: awful it is yeah that's terrible and um you mentioned you know talking about reparations for Native Americans and um you know how that's pretty much the origin of like reservations and things like that now at the time was it like considered reparations do you know if that was like and if if that was the hey let's quote unquote give them reparations so they you know it's just done and out of our hair or do you know anything about that?
2: Yeah, so what I would say is, um, I'm not sure if that's the historical term they would have used then. Mm. That's just the modern-day equivalent I use uh, now. But in everything that I've read, it very much was like, oh, people feel that the Native Americans have been hard done by Mm -hmm. because obvious. (laughs) And, and, you know, the Native Americans are sort of kicking up a fuss saying, hey you owe us something and so it was like okay well that's fine we will give you land we will give you resources we will you know pay you for some of these past indiscretions but then at the earliest possible convenience or just at the whim of the government it's like oh what's that Some of land we gave you is more valuable than we thought okay well suddenly we're going to change this agreement so now you have this other land instead and and when you think of native americans obviously there's a lot of uh you know hollywood stuff mixed in, and not all of that is true and Mm -hmm. a lot of it varied from tribe to tribe but they definitely were a people that felt very connected to nature the land the wildlife like Mm -hmm. in particular like uh specific geography um around you know burial grounds and sacred spaces and all this stuff and it's sort of like i don't know if you have made a living as a people for hundreds if not thousands of years by occupying these same five spaces in different seasons and then suddenly someone says like oh no actually like we're we're going to build them all there and hmm. <laughs> instead we're going to say like hey you need five spaces well, you know, there's a cool swamp over here, mm. and I can just put you over there. And, like, technically you can have these other four spaces of land right next to it. So it's the same, right? And mm. it's just like, well, no, no, not really. Right. Like, if suddenly, you know, the government said, oh, well, Washington, D.C., you know, isn't going to be Washington, D.C. anymore. Now that's Denver. And right. Denver, you'll be Washington, D.C. It's like, well, but what about the monuments? What about the history? What about... Like, all of, like, everyone mm-hmm. who already lives there suddenly is just like, oh, I have to move? Mm. What? This is crazy. Like, mm-hmm. how, how can you just uproot me? And that is definitely what happened. And just, like, even in transporting, you know, Native Americans from sort of point A to newly chosen point B, um, you know, the number of Native Americans that died is just crazy. Yeah, It's just like, oh, man, it's so awful. every yeah. Every step of the way. Yeah, and and again, like, I am someone with probably like a still fairly amateur historical understanding of a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. and and I am constantly overwhelmed at just the like dehumanizing. Just doesn't even really begin to describe what the government has done to Native Americans over the years. Right, and and again. Like, I will say, obviously, um, some people will say, oh, well, yeah, but, you know, there's a lot of money that goes to Native Americans. There's a lot of grants. There's a a Mm. lot of scholarships. And as someone who, you know, did benefit growing up from money from the government every month, um, it was definitely the only thing that, um, you know, kept me and my siblings alive. Mm -hmm. And, when I went to university, I, I did actually get some scholarship money, um, be, for being Native American, uh, and, and obviously I'm thankful for that. But at the same time, it like it doesn't really change how you feel about the government as a whole or how they treat people. I suppose it's, it's like the equivalent of if you're in an abusive relationship and like your spouse, like beat you until you're unconscious but then when you wake up says oh here's some grocery money
1: mm.
2: <laughs> like it doesn't change much
1: right absolutely um now there's something that uh just recently really within the last year because of my work that I learned about um within the foster care system and that is um the huge huge discrepancy of Native American children in the foster care system that it's enormously disproportionate to the number of native american children in the u.s that um native american kids make up like 15 percent of children in the u.s but like more than half of kids in foster care are native american which is wild i did not know that yeah i was reading um i i learned about it through my work i work with a lot of foster families and um there was a social worker that, you know, was my colleague at the time, and she was talking about the difficulties of, you know, working with this foster family and how there were a lot of really nuanced things because the child in foster care was Native American. And she was like, there's so much, you know, going on around that that is just really difficult to navigate because there are... Different things that we have to take into consideration, and then she mentioned, you know, um, especially considering the way that Native American children um, are treated in foster care, and the ways that Native American people have experienced foster care, um, that a lot of children are unnecessarily and forcibly removed from their homes, and so kind of going through that, and so more recently, I thought, like, well, what what does that really look like? And then, you know, looking it up and finding that statistic that they represent more than half of kids in foster care is bonkers. It's it's beyond the pale. It's it's something that, you know, for me is really incredibly difficult to wrap my mind around. Um, our foster care system is really screwed up. Like, it's shit. It's, it's terrible. Um, and most people who are in foster care experience... Terrible, weather, terrible things, whether it's abuse or food insecurity or housing insecurity. And I think what's really interesting and difficult for me to understand is why children are being removed from homes. And, like, I work in social services. I'm a mandated reporter, you know. Um, what's tough for me is that, okay, we're removing children from homes where maybe they're experiencing abuse or food insecurity or neglect. But then we're placing them in other homes, right, where they are, by and large, experiencing the same things. And so, why are we utilizing such a, such a horribly broken system, that targets, um, honestly, like that targets BIPOC, and like you're saying, if once you learn it, you can't unlearn it, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so then once you know the numbers and you know the statistics, you're like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is, this is mind boggling. And I know that when we've talked before, you've mentioned a little bit about having some experience in the foster care system. I wonder how you would feel about sharing a little bit about that with us.
2: Um, so... I would say I've known a lot of people in the foster care system who were abused, um, physically, sexually, um, and all that sort of thing. Um, I was never in the foster care system Mm. myself. Okay. Um, but, uh, sort of like that was the, that was the ax hung over our heads for our entire lives. Oh, so basically my mom, um, so to give a little family history, uh, my, Dad's side of the family is like long line for like literally hundreds of years of career criminals Mm. going back to like pirates in England. Mm. Um, And my mom's side of the family um, are all Native Americans. And uh, my dad was actually a drug dealer who was having sex with my grandma they had this relationship and my grandma was like oh i'm so tired of taking care of my 14 year old daughter i really wish there was some way i could just get rid of her Mm -hmm. and he was like oh well you could always just uh give her to me i'll marry her and she can just like cook clean and like be a sex toy Mm. And literally my grandma was like, oh, OK, well, that's fine as long as we can keep doing this. And he's like, heck, yeah, why not? Like, best of both worlds. Mm. Uh, he was not the best guy. Right. Um, but uh, apparently what happened then is uh, they went to my mom, who at the time was 14, and said uh, they got her really drunk really high and said, OK, well, we'll give you whatever you want um, as long as, you know, you'll you'll marry uh, this dude. And she was like, okay, I want a Happy Meal. So they immediately um, got in a car, drove to Vegas, on the way, got her a Happy Meal, um, spent a couple of days in Vegas, had some papers forged saying she was 16, not 14. Um, My grandma gave permission for her to get married to my dad. Um, and then as soon as they got married, my dad was like, forget you, grandma. <laughs> like, mm. I've got the younger model. That's all that matters. Wow. And so, um, you know, they were married. Uh, my dad was a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. Um, and like right off the bat, he would just like routinely like beat her, rape her, f- shoot at her with mm. like live ammunition, mm. even when she was pregnant with me, Jesus. um, like about a year later, um. And, you know, before I was probably, you know, one or two, he was murdered because he tried ripping off his business partner out of a, a lot of money. And his business partner found out and shot him. Mm. Um, and his business partner was this guy named Big John. And Big John went to my mom, who is like 16 at this time, and said, well, you know what? I just killed your husband. Um I've also taken all his money, so you don't have any money, you don't have any place to stay, and you don't have anyone to take care of you, and you have a kid, so if you want, like, you can marry me, I'll take care of you. Mm. And so she said, okay, and she married him, (sighs) And, uh, you know, within a couple of years, he basically tried pulling the same stunt with a, a new business partner, and he got killed. Mm. But this time, my mom was, you know, a little bit older, just mm-hmm. thinking about the fact that, like, all this happened, like, by the time she was 18. is kind of crazy. Mm. Um, and at that point, she was just like, well, I need to take care of myself. And from that point on, like, she was a, a con artist, drug dealer, prostitute, um, literally did anything anything and everything she needed to to be able to get money uh, feed her addictions uh, feed me Um, and so like I have vivid memories even of being like you know four years old um, Mm -hmm. sleeping in a loft in this tiny like one bedroom apartment while my mom had sex with men all night long Mm. and just like the next day being like so wiped out at nine AM that like she's just like point to a box of Cheerios and be like, Oh, you just have to get that. Um mm-hmm. but as I got older and as, you know, situations changed, they never really got a lot more stable, but they definitely got well, they just changed. Mm, <laughs> they just yeah. got different over time um as uh she had um children with her long-term boyfriend um so they were my half siblings the the thing she would always say over and over and over is like don't tell anyone outside the family anything you can't trust the police you can't trust the government you can't Mm -hmm. trust teachers you can't trust any of them because they're all out to get us And if they ever find out even half of what actually happens, they're going to take you all away. They're going to split you all up. And then all of you are going to be abused in the foster care system. And none of you are going to be able to help anyone. And I was the one who routinely got this talk because I was the oldest. Mm -hmm. And also I hated my mom and I was very rebellious and Mm -hmm. very outspoken. Mm -hmm. And so the fact is she knew or right, if anybody's gonna say anything, it's gonna be Chris. <laughs> and there were times when, yeah, I would have ran away. I would have reported stuff that happened to child protective services. But when I would like sort of confront my mom about stuff, she would say, Oh, are you really gonna do that to your brothers? Mm-hmm. You really gonna do that? And watch your one year old sister like be in the foster care system, wow. all this stuff and I would just be like, Well, I don't know, man, like, I guess you got me there. Right. Like, I don't want that to happen. And in so much growing up, there were times when people would call the cops on our family. Mm. Um, or, you know, the cops would get called on my mom for, you know, some crime she committed, and they'd come into the house and they'd see how filthy it was, or just like the fact there was no food or like all sorts of crazy living conditions that happened at different times Mm -hmm. and like at least a dozen times, my mom was told, all right, you have 24 hours to improve this space or we're going to take away all your children. Mm -hmm. And every time that happened, it it was, it was always the same. Oh yeah, we'll definitely fix it. We'll definitely fix it. We'll definitely fix it. The Mm -hmm. second those people went out the door, my mom would lock the door and say, everybody gets one box. Mm. fill it up with whatever you want to take with you we're moving tonight and we would just move to a different state different city wherever you know seemed best to my mom at that moment Mm. and you know sometimes we moved around six seven times a year um like by the time i was 22 or 23 i had lived in 38 states Um, (laughs) so like this was something that even though i was never in I was constantly under threat of and constantly in fear of and constantly, like just barely escaping. And, yeah. you know, in some ways, um, I'm really conflicted because I don't know what would have been worse. Like, like you right. said, oftentimes in foster care situations, people are abused in very similar ways, but just by people they don't even know. Mm-hmm. And you know, it does it make it better that I can point to just like, one or two people throughout my life who definitely abused me constantly, or, or would it somehow, like, what would it have changed in my life if I had that same experience, but over the course of five, six, seven different foster homes, like, I don't right. know, would that have eroded my faith in just like human decency or would mm. it have just like, I, I have no idea. Right. And like, I can only speculate, but it's definitely something that, yeah, I was always terrified of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. And I, I mean, um, you don't know what you don't know and what you haven't experienced. Like you said, all you can do is speculate. Um, so, wow, that's, um, that's wild. So then you've shared a, lo- a little bit about like your family history, um, you know, what it was like growing up as a child and a little bit about your creative work. So um, and, and your experiences with racism, too. So within all all of that, um, what are, you know, sort of some ways that you have found yourself um, affected by politics or ways that politics that you're aware of have affected um, Native American people throughout history? Mm,
2: Yeah. So I would say uh, just start with myself personally. um, I've always approached politics from like an incredibly cynical, skeptical position Mm -hmm. to the point where I was just like, well, I don't like even when I could vote. I the first uh, election I could vote in, I didn't, mm-hmm. um, and then um, the second election I could vote in, it was uh, the first time Obama ran for president, and uh, in the end, I voted um, Libertarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it it was just like a write-in mm-hmm. because at the time, um, I I I couldn't get over the idea of. Um, Obama supporting abortion Mm -hmm. and so I I I had this I uh, I don't know I just had this goal of like uh, everything has to be perfect Mm -hmm. I don't want to vote for you know the lesser of two evils I want to vote for something good um and, and you know what I don't knock the lesser of two evils but looking back I am like ok, Well, Obama definitely did some stuff as President that I don't agree with, especially a lot around like drone strikes and and mm-hmm. just made a lot of promises that, in the end, never quite came through. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know how much intention he actually had of them coming true. But realistically, I suppose especially in in light of, you know, the current political situation, I'm like, oh man, how did I think of Obama as like, the lesser of two evils, looking back, I'm like, man, I would take Obama again and again. Yeah. So what we have right now, this right. is, oh, man. Um, so that's sort of the way I approached it up to that first election. Um, and, and, you know, regardless of um, whether you liked him as president, Obama really did inspire me to get politically active. Mm-hmm. He was the first person who had run for president that really inspired me and Mm. definitely inspired a lot of my friends and it was also you know, partway through, um, university. And it's just a time where you're figuring out who you are, what you believe in, how you want to have uh, a change in the world. And so I I started getting really politically active then. Mm. Um, and I would say I am still very politically active now. Mm -hmm. Um, even more so since Trump became president, mostly because I'm like, oh man, like if we're not out there speaking out like all the time, like day in, day out, then like, this is just going to, like, white supremacy is is just going to continue to take root and is going to continue to just, like, overwhelm everything. Mm. Um, Because in my opinion, that is, like, 99.9% of what Trump's presidency is about, is white supremacy and maintaining that that status quo. right? And sort of looking at anything Obama might have done that acknowledged the inherent worth, the value, um, or or humanity of, uh, you know... Any ethnic minorities and saying like, no, nah, we're gonna erase that." Yeah. Um, hm. but uh, I suppose looking back into the past and you know how I think the government has related to the Native American people as a whole and how that continues to this day, it really is just this, uh, just this massive power dynamic that is crazy when you think about it because when the settlers first came here the pilgrims
0: and all Mm -hmm. of that
2: like literally they were starving they're dying they're like not gonna make it like no way out and uh you know a one uh, you know group of native americans sort of like helps them out takes some pity on them and just sort of like that act of generosity then ends up being like the first step in this long chain of the u.s government just being like we're better than you you're gonna do what we say and if you don't do what we say we're gonna kill you Mm. we're gonna rape you we're gonna move you around and we're just gonna control every like every little thing about your life Mm. and your um, your offspring and, and your legacy moving forward. And what has happened is just so much of that was just completely erased. Yeah. And so you have like this vicious cycle of the government being like, well, this is what we want you to do now. Take another one for the team. Mm. Take another one for the team. Take another one for the team. Right. And modern Native Americans and probably people at the time as well were like, well, we're not on the same team. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> like, We're not taking one for the team. And the U.S. government is just so big and so powerful. And people just don't care about Native Americans on on a whole. Like, as a society, America just doesn't care about Native Americans. Mm. And so it's just like, well, okay, your team's just going to get smaller. It's going to get smaller. It's going to get smaller. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you know, I I feel like either Native Americans are going to get completely killed off Mm -hmm. or, you know, the government is just going to have to get overthrown. Like, I just don't see how, like, any any other thing can happen. Like, it just seems the power dynamics are such that it would just take, yeah, an absolute revolution for things to change, which yeah. I know sounds extreme and some people maybe think is silly. Um, <clears throat> but I've I've heard a lot of my black friends say the same thing about the black experience in America and saying how they feel you know the only way meaningful change is ever really going to happen in america is is revolution and whether that's yeah. like a a physical revolution or like a subversive you know social revolution i don't know mm-hmm. but it's just like the power needs to shift yeah. and there's no indication that that's going to happen at the moment so if it ever does happen it's only going to be the result of something absolutely monumental
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you're talking about the power dynamics and, you know, um, the, the imbalance there. And one of the things that recently I learned in the last couple of years is that pretty much any agreement or treaty, so to speak, with the American government, between the American government and Native Americans, can be broken by the, by the American government at any time. It can just be like, oh, we're done. We don't like this anymore. And now we're going to change it for absolutely no reason um, and that that still holds true, you know, that that's a modern structure.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's when grandfathered in, the whole way. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I mean when it just feels like it's impossible to win. Yeah. You know, people have a phrase, uh, you know, oh well, stop moving the goalposts. <laughs> it feels like there's there's no chance of winning. And I'm like, that is the ultimate moving the goalpost move where mm-hmm. you just like, okay, this arrangement is not working out for me anymore. So right. I'm gonna change our arrangement <laughs> such that it suits me even more, mm-hmm. even though coming into this it already suited only me. Right. And Native Americans <laughs> are just there being like no, please don't. Yeah. No, we really don't want that. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, well, too bad. We don't care what you want.
1: Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think like that's just it's, it's really insidious. And I think it's one of the things that is the most uh, problematic, at least that I know of, is that so much of this is erased in our history and in our education. I was an adult when I learned most of these things, which is ridiculous because I graduated college and I should know this stuff. This should be something that you learn in grade school, junior high, high school, all the way up. And instead, um, my kids come home with, you know, um, the Native Americans helped the pilgrims and first Thanksgiving happened. And that's it. That's the extent of their education on Native American history, Um, and it's the stereotypical paper, feather, headdresses, and all of the things that they come home with, and so trying to, it's really frustrating to try to teach something that you're also still learning.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and especially if, you know, it's with children, Mm -hmm. because um, children don't seem to understand, I think a lot of kids expect their parents to know, like, everything. (laughs) And so, like, it's really hard for kids to accept sometimes when you're like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And they're like, how can you not know? And you're just like, I'm sorry, dude. Like, this is something, yeah, you're right. I should know this. I should have learned this a long time ago, but I didn't. But then also, like, especially as someone who is already navigating, like, Potentially tricky territory. So I'm Mm -hmm. very open with my kids. I'm very honest with my kids. And my kids ask me anything. Mm -hmm. I will like just very like plainly tell them the truth. To the point where my wife is like, okay, well I really hope the kids don't come to you for sex stuff (laughs) because like I feel like you would like overshare. You're gonna tell them too much. (laughs) Way earlier than I would. And I'm like yeah okay well that's probably true yeah Yeah, like I would yeah of course especially because I see that as something where it's like well you know what if you're going to talk about an important subject if you're not honest then they're not going to feel like they can come to you Mm -hmm. and also like in a sense with hard subjects or things that are culturally taboo I kind of feel like the more extreme I am in, like, just being honest with my kids, yeah. the more likely when they encounter a taboo subject that they're unsure about, they're like, well, my dad's talking to me about some pretty out-there stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure, like, he's not going to be afraid to talk about this. Right. Um, and, and so, like, with someone who has a family background that's already very much like that, like, you know, from the age of, like, three, my son was, like, Well, dad, what about your mom? What -hmm. about your dad? Mm -hmm. And having to explain to my son, oh, yeah, well, my dad's dead. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, no, I'm so sorry. And then he's like, are you going to die? And, you know, we have the whole death talk and we talk through that. And then he's like, well, but what was your dad like? And I'm just like, no idea, dude. Like, Mm -hmm. I never knew him. Mm -hmm. And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, he was a bad guy and he was doing bad things. And someone killed him for it. Mm-hmm. And then, like, that brings up a whole nother things, and, yeah. and then, you know, talking about the fact that my mom is alive. And, you know, it's very intermittent that we have contact. She has my contact details. But her stuff always changes. So I haven't spoken to her, gosh, in, yeah, probably six years now. Wow. Um, uh, basically, she started dating this... Uh, 17 year old boy and was ashamed to tell me about it Mm. and because he was a friend of one of my half brothers uh who my half brother was older than him at the time Mm. (laughs) and uh anyway so she was ashamed to tell me and so she just hasn't contacted me since Mm. um but you know having to tell them like oh well actually like my mom is kind of a bad person too. Mm -hmm. Um, But then trying to explain to them as well, like, well, listen, just because like people do bad things, like, doesn't mean that they fully chose their situation trying to explain basically generational trauma to a child and and then recognizing as well that like man there's so much about trauma and generational trauma especially they're like i need to learn Mm. that like i mostly just got through all of this stuff i got through by saying like okay well that's crazy but like we just have to be prepared for whatever's happening next Mm. so like let's just okay that happened What's the next thing? Mm -hmm. But anyway, explaining like that kind of life to my kids, and then you know at Thanksgiving, you know someone gave us this uh, like you know the Pilgrims first Thanksgiving Mm. board book, Mm -hmm. Um, and it was very interesting because you know at the time it was like oh this is supposed to be like a kind gesture because they know that like I'm Native American, and then it was very interesting because there's a friend of my wife's who um, then basically came out as a trump supporter which Mm. like i have other friends who are trump supporters that you know we definitely don't agree on politics but Mm. that relationship hasn't imploded but this one just completely like blew up Mm. she just like started really attacking me in super racist ways um and and saying like the worst possible things but anyway she had sent this uh Pilgrim's first Thanksgiving book and we read it for the first three years of my son's life my firstborn son Ezra mm-hmm. who's now six mm-hmm. we read it every year for the first three years and we sort of like tried explaining afterwards we like oh so this is like one version, this is like the the pilgrim side of the story, mm-hmm. but there's a lot more to it than that. You know, let's think about it as well from like the Native American side. And also, you know, we'll talk about it more later, mm-hmm. but, you know, actually like what the pilgrims ended up doing after this to those Native Americans was just really, really terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, trying to explain that kind of stuff to your kids in like a nuanced, age-appropriate way when you're like still trying to, learn it internalize it process it in terms of how your identity is and then like constantly be sort of looking back at your life and going like oh my gosh how did I not connect those dots Mm. that's insane yeah um and then like yeah it all just feeds into each other it's really hard um and and that said like I feel very blessed in that I have the freedom to be researching these things, Mm -hmm. to have the skills and resources and ability to find books that, you know, do talk about the history of America from alternate perspectives Mm -hmm. and sort of, you know, uh, better myself in that way. And, and you know educate myself, sort of decolonize a lot of my thinking mm-hmm. and then pass on that newly decolonized thinking to my kids mm-hmm. um, in whatever ways that I can. And there are a lot of people who, you know, I, I work a lot, I own my own business and there are a lot of weeks when I work 60 hours a week. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, I work from home, so I can spend a lot of time with my kids still because they don't have a commute or anything like that. Right. And I often will work in the evenings when people are asleep. But, you know, I look at people who are working three jobs and barely paying the bills, really struggling to survive. And I'm like, how is someone in that situation ever supposed to learn their history Mm -hmm. properly? How are they ever supposed to decolonize their thinking because, like, they don't have the money for these books? They don't have the time to sit and read these books. Some of them, you know, don't have like the interest in doing that because they've been so beaten down by the circumstances of life and the sort of like unwinnability of of the system. It's just like, yeah, man, it's, it's really, it's hard not to be hopeless sometimes Mm. I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that that's, that's part of why I'm like, well, our kids need to learn this in public education. Um, because, yeah, it's, it's incredibly difficult. And like you said, like we're we're fortunate to be able to access resources. Um, and one of the things that we've been that I've been talking with one of my friends about is is that lack of public education, um, specifically, uh, you know, when it comes to racial issues, um, historically speaking, and talking about like, well, wait a minute, are our schools like teaching anything from the perspective of indigenous people groups or, um, you know, or from the perspective of the black community or immigrants or really any other community except for like white men in America. Um, And so we've been chatting a little bit about like, how, how do we, um, how do we approach the school with like, Hey, you need to diversify your curriculum and you need to start like, teaching these things you need to start including authors of color you need to start including um like you said historical accounts from different perspectives and uh it seems to be like the the school system seems to be very rigid and just sort of like very not like unmoving on that for some reason um i mean i can think of a couple reasons but (laughs) but it's is fascinating how you know we'll bring it up and at least in my community um Right now, I live in a small town in Illinois, and uh, one of the big overarching things in our town is um, sports. Sports is a really big deal. School mascot um, is the same; it's it is um, it's congruent throughout all of the schools, all the sports teams. It doesn't matter; it's always the same, and it is. It is the Indians. That is what the team is called. That is the mascot. It's very um, caricature, uh, Native American. And recently there was a petition actually written by a student and circulated um, that gathered like, gosh, I don't even know how many thousands of signatures anymore. It went all around the country, actually, um, gathering signatures. And it got tons of support. But what's really interesting to me is that a lot of people in our community were the ones who were pushing back on it, who didn't want to change anything, specifically people in the school system, specifically people who were in administration and things like that. They're like, well, we're going to have to, you know, we were honoring Native Americans, and I, you know, and I just think that we should keep it. And also, it's going to cost a lot of money to rebrand everything. And so, we don't really want to. Um, and to my knowledge, nothing is changing. So despite gathering hundreds of thousands of signatures, um, nothing is going to happen. They're like, no, we'd rather not. (laughs) Which is, you know, mind-boggling to me that the school system is so rigid and so unwilling to move the needle at all on that topic.
2: Absolutely. And I think what's so, yeah, just heartbreaking about even that situation is obviously it's centering everything around, you know, One perspective Mm -hmm. um which is white yeah (laughs) obviously it sort of goes without saying but um it definitely centers things around that white perspective and just sort of like it's so interesting that like you said it can have thousands and thousands and thousands of signatures and at the end of the day the people in power know that their power is so total that they can just be like "Mm, nah and, and it's not going to change. Like, no one's taking that away from them. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you say things like, oh, yeah, well, it's going to be expensive to rebrand things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as someone who is a logo designer and does branding projects all the time for, you know, artists... Uh, businesses small and large I definitely know how much that can cost even from just a uh, you know printing perspective signs and everything else right. but also the design work that goes into it the thing is though in most cities where um there's a you know whether it's a national team or a, a college team or you know just a town team like you guys are mm-hmm. um that has a, a name that a lot of people object to I guarantee In in every one of those towns, there will be at least one, but probably a lot more, designers or design firms that are more than capable of rebranding that project who would probably be willing to donate their time totally for free Mm -hmm. just to see that change happen. Mm -hmm. And even if there were 10 qualified designers or creative agencies or design firms or whatever that came forward in your town, Just from what you've said, I really struggle to believe that the school would say, okay, well, yeah, fine, then let's rebrand. Right. But I think what they would probably do is they would probably just deflect, they would shift, and then they would make another excuse. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can always make other excuses. And, again, it goes back to that idea of, like, well, the people in power, if they can just, like, change what the parameters are at any given time, Mm. then – They're always going to stay in power. And it doesn't really matter how hard you try. Like, they're always going to win at that game. It's, uh, (laughs) this is super geeky, but it's like (laughs) Star Trek, where it's like uh, (laughs) Kirk has to take the test and it's like an unwinnable test. And Mm -hmm. so he's like, well, the only way to beat an unwinnable test is to cheat. Right, And it's just sort of like, yeah, man, like, that's what we need to do. We need to find a way to, like, cheat the system mm-hmm. so that we can actually beat it. Yeah. And I don't know what that looks like. But, yeah, I, I agree that if we could bring this diversity of perspective, um, this diversity of, of viewpoint um, and personhood, even, like, into school curriculums mm-hmm. uh, on a public level, that would be amazing. Yeah. But just knowing i suppose as someone who bounced around a lot of those systems Mm -hmm. how little they talk to each other even within the same state it makes it really difficult to to believe that you would have that consistently i think you'd have a lot of Places told, oh, hey, by the way, we need to start doing this. And you might see like a token change, but a lot of it just ignored. Mm -hmm. And the person at the top willing to like suffer the consequences if anybody ever, you know, has the wherewithal to call them out on it. Just like a lot of sheriffs with like masks and stuff being like, oh, well, I'm not going to enforce that then. Here. And you're just like, what? But no. Yeah. Oh. what
1: yeah here they're they uh, the sheriff in our county was like i'm i'm just not going to enforce it
2: What? yeah what that like that is what power does yeah like it, it's like the ultimate like let me talk to your manager move yeah so like, <laughs> it's just like oh my gosh like when someone who is the manager asks to see the other man like that's where it's just like it takes it to an exponential level mm. and it's just it's really hard to see Mm -hmm. how to get in on to an even playing field at that point um which is why i think a lot of people go the federal route and they campaign for federal change hoping that it will somehow trickle down to state change um but uh you know like trickle down economics don't work i'm not sure trickle down social justice works either um but i don't know i think i think in a lot of this We need to be active as individuals and as communities. And even if we know that sort of a lot of the tactics we're using are 99.99% never going to work, they're almost always going to fail, I feel like we still need to be pushing that forward and just constantly thinking of new tactics, thinking of new strategies, Mm -hmm. dialoguing as communities and thought leaders around, you know, these issues and how they can be solved. Um, but it, it takes a lot of energy and it, it yeah. can be exhausting, mm-hmm. especially, you know, at the moment with so many places still locked down, so much of this happening online, yeah. people's, you know, willingness to just like <laughs> treat other people like, you know, total garbage yeah. because it's the internet and, mm. but then again, like, I suppose the tricky thing is you're also seeing a lot of people willing to treat others like garbage in person now. And right. you're just like, is it the chicken or the egg? Like, I, I don't, don't know.
1: know. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Um, there's something, something really strange that just seems to be happening where it's like you said, um, there are, there are people that we've interacted with online who, in you know, in person, we've had positive interactions. Maybe we disagree or something like that, but it's been okay. But then we have an interaction online. It becomes very volatile. It's very negatively charged. And then we see them again in person post-online interaction, and it's horrible. It's horrifying. Um, and it makes me never want to leave ever again because you see those things happening over and over again and in like in the mild ways that it has happened to us, right? And I've seen it happen to other people that I care about in much more significant ways um, because of their marginalized identities. And so it is really strange because it's like, well, is it is it the fact that you're on the internet that you feel comfortable to say what you really think and to treat me the way that you actually want to treat me? Or is it that you have really just been such an ass online that now you're seeing this person you know you're seeing them in person and you don't really know how to recover from that so you just kind of like double down and stick to your guns on on what you've done
2: yeah i think a lot of it is just like people's true colors coming out i think polite society has a lot to answer for Mm -hmm. um you know i was one of the naive people that thought um after an Obama presidency, that there would just be no way that America would elect Donald Trump. Yes. I thought we had moved uh, moved on beyond that. and I was just proven completely wrong. Mm. Um, but the interesting thing is, uh, again, so many of my friends who uh, were black or you know other minority ethnic were just like, yeah, like, Chris, this is something that could really happen. And probably will. Mm. And again, I think it's it's the difference of um, you know, that privilege of just sort of seeing a lot of racism as misdirected mm-hmm. and not realizing, you know what? that that racist person who called me like all these terrible slurs for Mexican. Mm. actually, if I told them I was Native American, they'd probably just double down yeah. and they'd use slurs for Native American. Right. Like, it probably doesn't matter to them that I'm not their like pet hate. The mm-hmm. fact is, these people hate people who aren't like them. So the fact is, mm-hmm. I'm still the other. I'm still the wrong one. I'm still the garbage. And and not having internalized that growing up, it just means there's, there's definitely a lot of naivety that I've just had to let go and continue to have to let go. And so looking to the future, even, it's just like, I I don't know. I don't know how hopeful I am that Donald Trump won't win. And then also it's even more complicated because I'm also like, oh my gosh, Democrats, what did you do putting Joe Biden on the knee? I
1: know. And
2: uh, with everything that he has said and done... <laughs> Like not just the Tara Reid allegations, mm-hmm. but just like the way he routinely like talks to black people and about black people mm-hmm. and just like, oh my gosh, I just, I don't know. I, I think he gets uh, he gets a lot of credit for being a different human being than Trump, even though so much of what they're advocating for is, is just as bad. Yeah. And I don't know. Obviously, you know, we haven't gotten into this, but I still don't know fully how I'll be able to vote because to me, especially with the Tara Reid allegations, it's like, okay, well, if we said we're going to believe women and, Mm -hmm. you know, Tara Reid's allegations seem very credible, then it's just a situation where it's like, hold on, we're, like, plugging our nose and voting for someone anyway. Isn't that what we've been criticizing, like, the vast majority of Republicans for doing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Four years. Yeah. Like, does this not strike us as even slightly hypocritical? Like this feels like (laughs) totally selling out our, our values and our principles. And, you know, as someone who can look back at a time when, you know, they did a write in vote and say, you know, I think that was probably a bad choice. I think that was, that was silly. Yeah. This time I'm like, I don't understand how I could ever look back on this time and think it's silly. But at the same time, I suppose like people's lives are at stake. Mm. And that's where it is hard, especially someone, you know, being an ocean away, just knowing like, man, how, how can I be a force for positive change in this Mm -hmm. without feeling like I'm having to sacrifice so much of what I believe in?
0: Yeah. Join us next week to hear more from Chris as he shares some of his beliefs, his engagement in politics, and what it's like to vote in U.S. elections from another country. You've been listening to 99 Lead Balloons, honest talk about shit society ignores. Special thanks to my guest, Chris Campbell, for joining me. For more information on projects Chris is involved with, follow him on Instagram at ChrisCampbell. Links to studies referenced are available in the liner notes. Graphic and web design by Chris Campbell Creative. Go to chriscampbell.com for more. Theme song by Luciano Music Company. Licensed by Premium Beat by Shutterstock. Produced and edited by Stoke the Wild Studios. To stay up to date on episodes and content, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at 99pod or go to 99pod.com. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.